Dear friends, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9 and verses 10 through 17 this morning. Let's go ahead and read that passage of Scripture, this very important passage and famous miracle that Jesus performs in the feeding of the 5,000. Let's begin in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them away and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, this is a famous and um, familiar miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second of great um, mass feedings that he does. There's another time, which is of 4,000, and this one is of 5,000. Most likely, these are not the same instances, um, and we know that for many different reasons. But It's fascinating studying a passage like this and finding the various interpretations or applications that people will make to a passage like this. And what we have here is one of Christ's great miracles, one that was incredibly influential upon the people and one that was influential most especially upon the 12 disciples, the apostles most especially. And we see some things that, as we'll see, Luke's placement of this miracle at this particular place in the gospel, he's communicating certain things about Jesus. He's communicating that he is the Messiah. He is communicating that he is the Lord that provides for his people, just as the Lord provided for his people when they were in their wilderness journey. But we as a people can find ways to take such a Christocentric passage, a passage that so greatly emphasizes Christ's Messiahship, the fact that Jesus is the foretold prophet that was to come, the one who was going to speak as Moses had spoke, this greater Moses that was to come forward. We can take a passage like this and make even a passage like this man-centered and one of the most famous ones that you can find in traditional, the traditional Baptist church is that of the little boy who shared his lunch and the emphasis of that Sunday school lesson is of this little boy that shared his lunch and because he shared his lunch look at what Jesus was able to do and Jesus was able to do this with the little boy's lunch just imagine what he can do with what you share as well the emphasis upon this passage is not on where they gleaned the bread and the fish although it's not absent either and it does have a purpose within this passage and within the sermon as well. But it's not our emphasis. Our emphasis here is upon Christ. Christ being the Messiah. Christ being the provider for his people. Christ being the one who sustains his people in the midst of their wilderness journey. Where there was no hope, when there was no food around them, Christ provided for his people. Christ provides for his people even now. And Christ provided for the people here in the wilderness at this time when they had no food. Liberals interpret this as well in very interesting ways. The liberal interpretation generally comes at this passage. And they come at this passage and say, you know, we we are much more enlightened during these times. We are much more familiar with how science works than many people were in the first century were much more open-minded. And we know that you can't feed 20,000 people 
with a few loaves and a couple fish. It's not something that you can do because we're enlightened people of science. So we know that's not what really happened. What happened here at this passage is that there was the young man. He shared his lunch and he shared his lunch with Jesus and Jesus shared it with others. And then amongst this crowd of people, there were other people that had actually brought their lunches and they saw this generosity. They saw this compassion of these others that had shared their lunches. And so they began to share their lunches. And so they already had enough food. There was enough food there already. It just wasn't being distributed properly. And so Jesus gave the people this proper motivation so that they would share their lunches as well. And that is the real miracle that you can see here. That's the beauty that you walk away with, is this love and compassion they had one for another, and that they shared the food, and everyone had enough to eat. This isn't very open-minded or scientific. In fact, it's incredibly historically bigoted. It's very close-minded. It's incredible that you can find the intolerance of tolerance in so many places within our culture. The people in the first century weren't stupid. They were well aware that you couldn't feed 20,000 people with a handful of fish and bread. It's not something that you can do. These are people that knew, even more than we do, honestly, the difficulty and the dangers involved with raising food at this time period. The fact that you could work for a whole season and lose everything that you had grown. They didn't have the ability to ship things like we do nowadays. They didn't have corn that was in cans on the shelf that you could just go and grab and, and use that would stay there for months on end. No, they had to work and struggle for these things. So they were well aware that you couldn't just make food out of thin air. It wasn't something they would have just believed or just trusted in, which is why the miracle was so significant for the people at this time period. I'm saving my last interpretation because this one is is my favorite. And it reminds me of a book. Uh, Kids would always do a summer reading program and then they would get some kind of a prize from the library and one of my children picked out a dinosaur book. Of course, of course, every young boy likes a dinosaur book. We began to look at the first couple pages of this dinosaur book, and the dinosaur book began, if you want to be a paleontologist, if you want to be a scientist that studies dinosaurs, what you need is a great imagination. Well, I found that to be very interesting, that the key thing you needed to be a paleontologist was this great imagination. And I believe in this last interpretation, it is a great imagination that was used here as well. They believe that what Jesus did here was he actually, even though the text doesn't say that he sent his disciples out, the disciples actually were sent out to gather food for all of these people. And they went and hid all of this food in a cave. And then Jesus began to distribute this food out. And they were passing it through his sleeves. I guess they were passing pieces of fish and bread through his sleeves as That's kind of gross, honestly, kind of weird. But for 20,000 people, most likely, the amount that would have been there, he began just to pass all of these things out. But to the people looking, it looked like he continually had more and more bread and fish that he was passing out. Such an interpretation doesn't take into account the fact that the disciples went about professing this miracle. The disciples went about declaring this truth. This is not only here, but it's in the other Gospels as well. And these are stories you need to remember that were written very near the time when these things happened. These are stories that were written by people that were there or connected very directly to those that were participating in these activities. And these are people who died professing these truths. I want you to consider that. I think it's it's the height of, of foolishness to believe that these are men, these are women as well, that believe these things, profess these things, declare these things. In the early years of Christianity, they knew them to be false. They continued to profess them, gaining nothing in a worldly sense, and in fact, losing their standing and their culture, many of them, losing their possessions. 
and losing their lives. There are, it's true, people live believing lies. That's true. People die believing lies. But it's, it's an entirely different situation when you know something to be a lie and you continue to hold to it to the point of your death. And not only you, but a great, great many other people. It makes no sense that so many people would die professing and claiming something that they know was false and professing these lies they were complicit in. Putting on this charade, supposedly gathering all this food, not taking into account this is in the wilderness. You don't have Amazon. You can't just have this stuff shipped to a cave and dropped off. We're to believe the 12 disciples also paid to have all of this food shipped into a cave. It's unrealistic, and it is absolutely, absolutely absurd. Robert Stein makes this point. This is what he says. He says, The tradition and the gospel writers all understood this to be a miracle, and thus beyond rational explanation. All rationalistic attempts to explain the event behind Jesus being hidden from the crowd with a cave full of supplies that provided the bread and the fish or the generosity of the small boy, as we see in John 6, 9, who sharing his food caused others who had more than enough to share their food as well so that all had enough violate the clear meaning of the text. Luke and the other evangelists clearly intended to demonstrate Jesus' supernatural, miracle-working power. That's the intention of the text. That's the intention of the writer. And Luke places it here right after Herod's question, as we saw last time, and right before Peter's profession. Herod's question in Luke 9 and verse 9 says, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. That's Herod's question. So we have Herod's question being asked, and then Luke places the miracle right here, and then afterwards... We have Peter's profession, which is where we will be next week. Luke 9 and verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Are we to believe that Peter was convinced of Christ's Messiahship, that Jesus was the Messiah because he convinced other people to share his lunches? Is that the great activity that encouraged Peter to make this great profession about Jesus? Or do we need to interpret the great catch that Peter saw as well? Perhaps we need to look at the great catch, where they had the great catch and Peter professes to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Are we to interpret that? That, well, before these men weren't working together, they weren't working as a team, but because Jesus was there and he was encouraging them rightly, they began to have synergy. They began to work together in teamwork and look at what they accomplished. You probably sat through a meeting like that at your job, bringing everyone together. Look at what we can do through our teamwork. No, not at all. This was a miracle. Jesus performed this miracle, and Peter saw this miracle. It wasn't only a miracle of a great catch. It was a miracle because they caught the fish during the day, and the nets that they used did not work during the day. That's why they had been fishing all night, because that's when you use those drag nets that they used, because during the day the fish can see them. They will swim out of the way. No, these are true miracles, and they were, they were declaring who Jesus was. These miracles point to Christ's Messiahship, and that Jesus was the great prophet. Jesus was the great prophet that was foretold, that was coming forward. We see the people declare that in John chapter 6 and verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They connected the miracle that Jesus did Jesus providing for the people that all of them could eat at this time as they were in the wilderness to Jesus being the Moses who was to come. Remember that. Now, I'm saying Jesus is the great prophet. I'm not saying Jesus is only a prophet. So I don't want some of you to say, what's this guy saying? Do you not believe that he's God? No, no, he is fully God. He is fully man. And Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. We're not to understand him as cults and false religions would understand Jesus, but Jesus 
most definitely serves in this prophetic office. And he was, he was declared, he, it was declared that he would come by Moses. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Moses predicted this. Moses said one like him would come. Moses was not sufficient. If you remember, Moses was a great man. The greatest man of the Old Testament, a man that was used greatly by the Lord to lead the people through the wilderness and to lead them up to the promised land. But you remember, even Moses had his own insufficiencies. Moses is one who didn't even make it into the promised land himself. So even in Moses' life, you can see the ways in which he was insufficient, the ways in which it was necessary that someone else would come that would lead the people where they are to go. And Christ is that one. Christ is the one who is leading his people forward. Christ is the Moses who was to come, who was prophesied by Moses that he would come. And Jesus performing this miracle is pointing to that pointing to him as this greater Moses, this one who is providing for the people in the midst of their wilderness journey. So we don't have points in the sermon, as I often do, generally break it up in points, but we do have some themes that we're going to emphasize as we walk through this. And the two themes that I want to emphasize are, are first, the insufficiency of man and his methods. We see this reality that man, seeking through his own methods, to make right what needs to be made right, to do what needs to be done, is insufficient. Do be mindful of this. We aren't called to go out on our own and just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to just use whatever methods in our culture are being used or whatever is emphasized at this time. No, we're to use the methods that Christ has given to us. We need to trust in the means that the Lord has given, trusting in Christ and what he has commanded Believing in what he has done. So secondly, we see the sufficiency of Christ and his means. That Christ has given a means whereby to save his people. Christ has given a means whereby to feed his flock. Christ has given a means that we are commanded to, to follow, to trust in, to believe upon in. So look at that first part, that first emphasis there. This, the insufficiency of man and his his methods, Luke 9 and 10 through 13. says says, On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages, the countryside, to find lodging and provisions. For we are, we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and to buy food for all these people. The disciples are here and they see the depth of the need. They see the breadth of the need. They see the greatness of this need. There's 5,000 men that are here. This is only counting the men. So it's being conservative to say that there were close to 20,000 people here at this time, all gathered around and hearing Christ teach, hearing the the preaching of Jesus. And I want you to imagine that for a moment. He must have had an incredible voice. He must have been able to project his voice. He's he's not only speaking to 20,000 people. He doesn't have great acoustics all around him. He is speaking to 20,000 people outside and they're hearing him. They're, they're following him. They're listening to what he has to say. And they're continuing to stay there to the point that they need provisions at this time. And this was a great need. The disciples saw this great need. But they recognized that their methods were insufficient. And Jesus wanted them to see that. He even asked, well, you go feed them. They need to eat. You, you go ahead and you feed them. I, I suppose they began to look around. So, okay, well, here's, here's a couple items that we have. The young man offered what he had, what he had brought, and it was insufficient. The disciples had not the power or the ability to provide for this people in their great need at this time. So they had to rely upon the Lord. 
It was but one option, one option at this point. If the people were going to stay here, they had to be provided for at this time. So just as the Israelites had to rely upon the Lord at this time, so did the disciples had to rely upon the Lord to provide for the people who were there before them. And this is pointing back very, very clearly, very intentionally, that Jesus is the one that was providing for the Israelites as they were there in the wilderness. The Lord was providing for them at that time. This is the Lord that brought all things into existence. This is the one that John speaks of, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say that all things were brought into being through him. That's verse 3 in John chapter 1. So many times people want to argue about whether or not we need an indefinite article in the first and second verse of John chapter 1, and I like to bring them down and just say, let's look at John John, John 1 and verse 3, where it says that he brought all things into existence that have come into existence. Did, did he make himself? Did Jesus bring himself into existence? They will say, no. I said, okay, well, he must have already existed. No, 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 no. He brought all things into existence except himself. No, that's not what it says. It says he brought all things into existence. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. And he provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. And it is here that they are in a, a desolate place. Just as the Israelites were in the wilderness. Hopeless on their own. Walking and following the Lord as he had commanded them to, to exit. To leave Egypt. He's providing for them. The Lord is providing for them as well. Likewise for us, dear friends. We, we can be tempted as a church. You can be tempted in your own lives individually, to go and to begin to use worldly methods. You can see the greatness of the need that exists, the greatness of the problems that exist. You can use so many worldly methods in evangelism. You can look around in the world and say, well, this, the people in this culture, they really like to be entertained. The people in this culture, they really like smoke, they like lights, they like lasers, they like things flashing around them. They like to have things in very small chunks that don't require much attention. So we need to create a church service that looks just like that. What do we end up doing when we do that? We end up making a very cheap version of a rock concert. And I understand there are some out there that have put some money into this and they're putting on some shows. But you end up attracting people with that that's not beneficial to them. You end up attracting people in idolatrous worship that distracts them from their true need, that distracts them from the true solution that the Lord has granted, is giving in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are tempted to use all kinds of worldly methods. Likewise, in our lives, we can be tempted in the same ways. We must recognize it's not up to us to, to, to work and to come up and to come up with the means in which we are going to change the country, change the world. We need to focus on our own hearts. We need to focus on our own lives. We need to focus on our own families. That's the first place you want to change the world. Begin with yourself. Be begin with your own heart and, and look to Christ. Begin with your own families, how you're ordering your families, how you are prioritizing what you do and what you emphasize. That is a key. That is a means to doing what you're desiring. Not just coming up with worldly plans and worldly schemes. The Lord intentionally places his people in times of difficulty so that they must trust in him. Even the great apostle Paul came to this realization. He speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul speaking now, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what we have here. The apostles were not able to do what needed to be done. They saw the greatness of the problem. They saw the vastness of the problem. And they had no means 
other than to walk in faithfulness to what Christ had commanded. Philip Ryken makes this point about this passage. He says, the feeding of the 5,000 reminds us not to forget that God is not limited by our inadequacies. Rather, our very limitations can display the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ whenever he does what we are unable to do. His power is made perfect in weakness. So we must walk in faithfulness, dear friends. We must trust in the Lord's means. We must trust in what the Lord has given to us. Do not dismiss these ordinary means that the Lord has given. The Lord has used these means throughout the history of the church to work and to change his people, the people gathering together on the Lord's day in prayer. Do not think light of this. This is significant, dear friends. This is the people of God gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. And they have an ear with the creator of the universe. Imagine if you had an ear with the president. Don't get distracted by the current president. But just imagine the idea of of having an ear, having having an audience with someone who was in great power. They they would listen to you. You You could walk into their office and talk to them. That's significant. That's not small. Imagine how much more significant it is that Christ had created peace between you and God. That the Lord will receive your prayers. The saints gathering together on the Lord's Day for prayer is no small thing. The saints gathering together for teaching on the Lord's Day is no small thing. The Lord will use this to bless you and to strengthen you, to grow you, to encourage your family, to bless you in many, many ways. The saints gathering together even for worship, to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord uses these means for his good purpose. Don't think too little of a, a family gathering together to, for family worship. Gathering together, opening up the word of God reading these truths, walking through catechism together, praying with each other. These are blessings the Lord is giving. Do not neglect these things. You are neglecting the blessing of the Lord upon you in doing that. You are neglecting just these things that are regular and ordinary, not, 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 not spectacular. But these regular means the Lord uses are significant. Don't overlook even your private studies you, you carving time out of your life to open up the word of God. You carving time out of your life to, to pray for others. We intentionally order that we, we systematize things. It's just something we do as a church. We create different kinds of, of systems. And we've added various systems over the years. And we have a system of praying for members of the church, families of the church. That's how we break them down. Of course, there's members, but for the purpose of organization and praying for particular groups of people, we break them down in families. And so I prayed for five families this morning. We encourage the church as well to reach out to members and to ask them, how can I pray for you? The scriptures say, that the writers say that we should be praying for kings and those in authority. We have a system for that as well. We have broken down. We go through executive, legislative, and judicial branches, local, state, and federal. Everyone doesn't have to do this, but we create systems. That's what we do. We encourage the people to be praying for these leaders. Likewise, we pray for other churches, and we systematically pray for certain churches. We reach out to them, and we see how we can be praying for them. I would encourage you to be participating in these means. I'd be encouraging you to be participating individually and as a family and corporately with the church as a whole. Leaning upon our own wisdom, our own understanding, but leaning upon these means the Lord has given the blessing the Lord has given. This is no small thing. Our means are insufficient. Man's means are insufficient. It's like in your salvation, you're saved by grace and through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. 
Imagine if it was you being, being saved through your own efforts, you would have something to boast about. Even in these means that the Lord has granted to you, that you can participate in, that he's given to you, they point to the Lord. The Lord is glorified in working within you, in strengthening his church, in growing his church, conforming them to the image of Christ Jesus. These point to the sufficiency of Christ in his means. The sufficiency of Christ in his means. The, the means the Lord has given, the way in which the Lord has told us to order the church, the way the Lord has told us to order our lives is not a way that someone would have, would have come up with and said, you know, if you want to influence the world, if you want to take a handful of people, you want to take 12 people and expand it to 120 and then have it all the way across to the country of India and up into northern Europe in a matter of one generation, do this. And that's not what they would have done. That happened because it was the Lord's means. And the Lord is doing this through his means, through the work of his word, through the work of his spirit, that he may be glorified. That no man can say, this was my great idea. Paul goes so far as to say the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. It makes no sense other than God told us to do this. The foolishness of the cross. The offense the cross was in the first century. So many over and over at that time period It made no sense at all from a worldly standpoint. Why would that be the method? Why would that be the means? What you're saying here is that your king comes forward and then is is killed by the leaders of that day. He's resurrected. He goes on to heaven. And then your people take no political positions. Your people do not. He doesn't become Caesar. And yet Caesar, the Caesars are gone. The Roman Empire has fallen, but Christ's church is standing strong because Christ's church is being fed by Christ. So we see the sufficiency of Christ and his means. Let's look there in verses 16 and 17. It says, In taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, and then broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. We see Christ here coming in the midst of this disorder. And he brings order to the situation. He even commands them to sit down in an orderly way in groups of 50 so that these items can be uh, easily distributed. We don't need to look into these details too much. I've seen some that tried to say, well, they were blessed because they were obedient and they sat down and those that didn't sit down. And We don't need to look at it that way. He was bringing order to this situation just as the Lord brought order to the creation itself. We see that in the beginning verses of the scriptures. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the Lord brought order to this disorder. Christ is bringing order here. Christ is sustaining them here in the middle of the wilderness. When they are without hope, Christ is giving that to them. Christ is blessing them with food in this time, just as he did to the Israelites and Jesus could have just made the food out, out of absolutely nothing. Don't, don't miss that. He could have just made food. He could have just brought it into existence. But that's not what he did. Um, he, he chose, rather, to use pre-existing material to perform this miracle. And we see Jesus doing that at other times in the creation of man. We talked about that in Sunday school last week, that the creation of man was special and that Everything else he just called into existence from nothing, but man he brought into existence from pre-existent material. And here as well, Jesus is using pre-existent material to perform this miracle, to, to make the food that he will feed to all of this people. He's using this pre-existent material to, to bless these people, and he's using what is even given to him by this young man that all can eat and and feed 
from it. And there is something there that I believe is very, very important. And I think that is a point that we need to recognize that Jesus didn't need to use these loaves and fish that were given to him to perform this miracle, but he chose to do that. And no one would look at this and walk away and say, see, the little boy that gave the food is the one, he's the reason why all of this happened. That would be absurd to walk away and say something like that. But we must not miss that either. That the Lord chose to use the gift of this young man to feed all of these people. Just remember that as well, dear friends. Although you are trusting in the Lord and the work of the Lord, we aren't just sitting on our hands and, and doing nothing. The Lord is working even within us, working even within us in, in our imperfection, working within us in our insufficiency. Not that we become sufficient, not that we become the end all and be all, but that Christ is choosing to use you, dear Christian to use you in your life to bless others. That you are described, dear church, as the hands and the feet of Christ. You you are the body of Christ Jesus. The Lord doesn't need you. I hope none of you ever believe that. The Lord doesn't need any of us. And that's a good thing. What, What good would God be to you if he actually needed you? But the Lord... The Lord uses you, dear Christian. The Lord chooses to work through you. The Lord has given his means, his word, and his spirit, and he works within you. And along with the rest of the church, hands and feet and eyes and all working together to accomplish the work of Christ on the earth, that is no small thing. Don't look past that. And the part that you play, the role that you play, is significant. We must be faithful where we are, where the Lord has, has given to us. With what the Lord has given to us, the Lord has given to us opportunities to be of service to others. The Lord has given to us opportunities that he would work through us. Do not diminish the opportunities that you have. Do not look at opportunities that you have as, as just mundane, or this is just a small thing. Do not judge the opportunities that the Lord gives to you through the lens of our culture. Let's not try to do that. Let's not try to take that which the Lord says is significant and great. We, we were singing Psalm 127 earlier. That's one that this culture does not respect. This culture does not see children as a heritage, does not see the fruit of the womb as a blessing from the Lord, but that is freely declared in that psalm. We must see the things that the Lord says is good. We must believe those despite what our culture says. We must see the opportunities to walk in obedience to Christ as that which is a blessing, that which is a, a good thing. And understand this as well. He begins to, to break this bread. He begins to pass out this bread. This is the way we would understand this within the, the language, the Greek as it's written there. This is basically an aorist tense. It's an active aorist indicative tense. And so this is the idea. I understand it says he broke, but this is not the idea that he broke and then he was done. This was a continual activity, which of course would make sense if there's this many people. This is just basically he had the bread and he's just breaking it off. And this bread is just filling up these baskets as it is going out. So it's just multiplying in his hand as he is breaking it off. And he's breaking it off and it's filling these baskets. And all of the people are being provided for. All the people are sustained here in the wilderness through what Christ is providing continually through them at this time. Ambrose makes this point. He says, It is clear that the multitude were filled not by a scanty meal, but by a constant and increasing supply of food. You might see in an incomprehensible manner amid the hands of those who distributed the particles multiplying when they broke not, the fragments too, untouched by fingers, breakers spontaneously. And this idea is that he was just breaking it and it was just being provided for. The miracle points to Christ in his overwhelming provision for his people. This is what was being pointed to in the Exodus narrative as the people were being provided for in the wilderness. It's pointing to what the Lord does for his people as they are here on this earth and he is blessing them and caring for them and providing 
for them. And look what it says in verse 17. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up in 12 baskets of broken pieces. Don't miss that picture there. 12 basketfuls. Okay, we're not to walk away from this and say, okay, well, there's all these baskets and they picked up. And so we need to also, you know, pick up our food and wrap it up. You should do that. You should be a good steward of whatever the Lord gives you, whether it's your food or your finances or your time. There's no question there. But the emphasis here upon these baskets that are overwhelmingly full is an emphasis upon the apostles. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. The provision that's given through the Lord there, the apostles are bringing to the people what Christ had provided. So they are the vessels that this is coming through. They are the means through which this provision is going to the people. So you have this feeding coming to the people through the apostles, through the work that Christ is doing. You see that, of course, coming through in, with the Israelites, through the 12 tribes, and ultimately through Christ that comes forward. And you have the provision here given, the word of God that is given through the apostles to provide for the people. And you have an abundance. That's what you need to see here. There's overwhelming provision. Overwhelming. It is, it is stuffed. It is full. The people ate all they could eat, and they were completely satisfied there in the wilderness. Jesus will do, dear friends, more for you than you could ever imagine. That's what he will do. You don't have to just look at the world. You don't have to just look at the state of the world. I know you can see the news and you can get really depressed or worried. And there's things to be concerned about in life. And there's things to be, uh, to be sorrowful, sorrowful for in life. But you must know, dear Christian, that Christ will provide for you. Christ has provided for you. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who provides the one who does far more than we could ever imagine. And should we not be surprised the Lord can do more than we would imagine? He is infinite and we are finite. This is pointing forward to this great messianic banquet that will occur, that, that we are pointing to each and every Lord's Day as we participate in the Lord's Supper. It's even prefiguring the Lord's Supper at this time as they're participating in this feast Isaiah 25 and verse 6 says, on this, on, the mount, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-defined. We also see it. We see it in many places. I'll give you a few of them. Isaiah 65, 13 and 14. Therefore, this says the Lord, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. And we have a contrast being communicated here between this messianic festival, this messianic feast that will occur in the those who are not in Christ, those who are um, adversaries of the Lord. And the similarities to the Lord's Supper are here. It's prefiguring the Lord's Supper. This was recognized most certainly by the early church. But I just want to point out a couple ways in which we see similarities. Um, in verse 916, he gives thanks or he blessed the food. First Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, we'll get two two points from this, but he says, for I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so you have him there on that night when he was betrayed, blessing the food prior to passing it out. And you also have the breaking, the breaking of the food as well, which is something that happens here as well, he broke the bread at the Lord's Supper, and he's breaking the bread here in the feeding of the 5,000. This is pointing to what Jesus does for the sinner spiritually, what he does for the church corporately, what he has always done for his people. But specifically, see that, dear friends. Don't walk away and not see that. He will do this for you individually. He, he, Christ will grant to you 
a sustenance that, that exceeds more than anything this world could grant to you. This world will leave you wanting. Christ will sustain you. Christ will give you purpose, significance. It's only in Christ that you can even fully be in touch with what you are meant to be, what you truly should be within your humanity. That's, that's the idea of being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. He is working and affecting you. Isaiah 55, let's start in verse 1. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. Christ has been granted that you may have life, that you may have true life. Isaiah talks here of this covenant with David, that there would always be one who would sit upon the throne of David. Just as there was one that was prophesied that would come, would be a greater Moses, there's one that was prophesied that would be a greater David. There would always be one to sit upon the throne of David. He would sit there forever and ever and ever. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King the one who will protect and provide for his people. And he gives a spiritual food which is not for sale. You cannot purchase it. You can but receive it. You can but believe upon Christ. You can repent of your sins. And you can gain from Christ the fruits of his labors. That's what you can gain That's what he will give to you if you will but come to him. If you will see this, there is a law that we have broken. We have violated God's law. We've been born into this life, and we try to make ourselves feel better by comparing ourselves to other people. But it's not the standard. The standard is perfect righteousness, and we're born into this life fallen. We're born into this life dead. We're born into this life, as Paul says in Romans 3, not good, unrighteous, not even seeking God. Even the ways in which we say we're seeking God in our unregenerate state are merely seeking idols within our own hearts. No, Christ has come that you may have life and have it abundantly, that you can feed upon him that you can receive from him the blessing of the fruits that he has earned for his people. He's also, and you know this, he's also the greater Adam, the one who comes forward to represent his people. The first Adam fell, and in Adam all of us fell. But Christ came prophesied as one who would come from the woman, one that would crush the head of the serpent, and Christ is one who has done that. And if you will trust in Christ and believe upon Christ, he will represent you. You will stand under his reign, his rule, his representation. And you will be adopted into the family of God. And that beauty of adoption is there and displayed. And even each and every act of adoption that is done properly is pointing, is pointing to what Christ is doing for his people Christ never broke the law. Christ never sinned. And Christ fulfilled the law in every way. Two problems we have. We have broken the law. We have sinned. We have not fulfilled the law in every way. Christ has done both. If you will but come to Christ and believe upon him, trust in him, repent of your sins, he will save you. The people at this time misunderstood what was happening. People of this time misunderstood what was happening. We see this in John 6, beginning in in verse 33. Jesus says this. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say this in verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. They They saw Jesus here in his provision, and they said, We need to make this guy king. It's a lot of work making all this food, providing all this food. We need to just make him king. 
They saw him just as themselves. They saw him just as one of them. They didn't see this miracle that Jesus did. And then immediately say, oh, well, this is the Messiah. This is, this is fully God. This is fully man. Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. Woe is me, as Isaiah says, from a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This people saw this miracle, and they said, this is great. This guy needs to be king. We'll, we'll defeat the Romans. We'll defeat everyone. This guy can just make stuff. But Jesus says this to them. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This is beyond just having a meal, which God had provided for them. Every other meal they had ever received. That's something that they're not recognizing here. They're looking at themselves as the providers of those meals and not thanking God for what he had given to them. But J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says, The heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied till it comes to Christ. That is a promise. That That is a reality. The people here were fed physically until they were satisfied. And the same will be true for you, dear friends, if you will but come to Christ. Cling to him. But feed from Christ your church. There are baskets full, just as you see those baskets full in the text of provision for the people that are there, that people, if they were still hungry, they could continue to eat and eat and eat. That is what we have provided for us through Christ and his means. The world will never satisfy. The world will leave you wanting. The world will leave you empty. The world will leave you hopeless. It's like St. Augustine says, there is a God-shaped hole in all of us. This world cannot be what only Christ is. Only Christ can be your Messiah. All else will leave you hopeless. All else will leave you empty. Dear church, look to Christ. Look to his provision. Look at the blessings of Christ. Remember what Jesus says, that man is not even to live on bread alone. That comes from the teaching of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Not on bread alone, not on what this world merely provides, but on Christ and his provision. That is what is there if you will but trust in him, believe upon him, and turn to him. Church, if you will trust in his means, if you will remember the insufficiency of man and his methods, the worldly means are not the means God has provided. The worldly methods are not Christ's means. But Christ is sufficient. He's granted a means to your church to provide for you in all ways, in all that you need for life, for growth and godliness, for yourself individually, for your family, for the church locally, for the world at large, and for the church universally. It is in Christ, and it is his means that he has given It's in Christ we must trust. And in trusting in Christ, it is Christ that is glorified. Dear friends, I pray that you desire to glorify Christ in all aspects and in all ways of your existence. Let's pray.